Welcome to Real Estate Hackers, where you'll hear how real estate investors grew something from nothing. Property management is going to become more technical. Our entire business today is based off of a hack. What if you could put $1,000 into an apartment building project on your phone? With YouTube, with podcasts, you can catch up very quickly to a seasoned investor. Now here's your real estate hacker host, Chad Gallagher. Welcome to the Real Estate Hackers Show, where we talk to actual investors who use systems and tech to scale out their business and where they see this all going in the future. Before we get to this week's guest, a few words from our partners and friends of the show. This show is brought to you by Red Rabbit Insurance. As a real estate investor, I love working with companies and people who truly understand investing. If you're a real estate investor, I highly suggest talking to Ryan at Red Rabbit Insurance. Red Rabbit specializes in working with investors of all sizes, both for their personal residence, auto, and investment properties. Red Rabbit recently saved one of our investors $5,000 a year by switching to the exact same coverage. That's a down payment on a new rental. I personally saved 15% by switching to Red Rabbit, which is pretty significant. And Red Rabbit Insurance makes it super easy to get a quote. All you need is the address, your full name, and your date of birth. No annoying questionnaires to fill out, and Red Rabbit gets you a quote in less than a day. Email ryan at redrabbitinsurance.com or go to the website redrabbitinsurance.com or call 1-800-560-3015. That's redrabbitinsurance.com. Call today to save some money and get better insurance rates for your investments. What is up, guys? I'm super pumped here today coming at you with another episode of the Real Estate Hackers podcast. We got an awesome guest here doing some crazy innovative stuff that I am, I just think everyone's going to really love to hear. I want to bring him in, Chad Kalashaw. Chad, thanks so much for uh, joining the podcast here. Likewise, Chad. Appreciate yeah. the opportunity. Yeah, this is going to get really tricky. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the double Chad problem here is uh, going to make for a tricky interview. Um, so uh, Chad is coming from Epic Real Estate, uh, where he's a partner and co-founder in a basically a real estate investing syndicate company that we're going to learn all about. Uh, and uh, I guess you, you, so you started it with a couple other partners. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I uh, founded the company with one partner, Cruz Sierra, uh, who's a managing partner, and then have since brought on an additional partner, Barrett Abel. Cool. So yeah, why don't you kind of talk me through how the heck you got started in, in real estate uh, I think you kind of started out more on like the mortgage loan side of things and then, and then probably started to figure out like what deals work and what deals don't, but based on being the lender, is that? Yep. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I guess first exposure to real estate, um, my first job out of college, I was originating, you know, conventional mortgages for bank of America. Um, I actually have it on my LinkedIn as originating mortgages the old way. Uh, because, you know, kind of dissimilar from what most we're going to talk about in, in this conversation, we used no tech. Um, it was really originated in the mortgages, the old fashioned way. So anyway, I guess that taught me what I didn't want to do in real estate more than it taught me what I wanted to do. Um, bounced around a couple of, you know, kind of classic venture backed Silicon Valley technology companies and ended up landing at a company called Lending Home. Uh, which has since grown to be the largest fix and flip lender in the country. Uh, and that's really where I'd say, you know, both myself, Cruz and Barrett cut our collective teeth on real estate, um, you know, learn what makes a good deal good, a bad deal bad and, and otherwise, and, uh, you know, really apply kind of the learnings from the finance side to our business today. That's awesome. So I guess, is there anything that, before we kind of get into what you do today, is there anything that comes to mind that maybe was a little surprising as you were kind of going through that, education system of the fix and flip? Um, I don't know, maybe a certain kind of deal type that just didn't work well or something that caught your eye or I don't know, something that, you know, maybe you learned that's a little more specific, I guess, that you're like, oh man, that, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, look, you, you think about um, on the fix and flip side of things, and I guess I should say I, I flipped uh, almost 100 homes uh, along the Pacific coast. We were active in the Bay Area and California uh, in the Portland Metro up in Oregon and then the Seattle Metro up in Washington. Uh, and you make money on flips really one of three ways. Um, you know, one is market appreciation, just home prices going up, you know, call it over the course of your six to nine month hold um, in large part outside of your control. But if you, you know, time things correctly, you can benefit from that tremendously. Uh, the second we call forced appreciation, which is, you know, renovating the home and creating value in excess of what you spend renovating the home. Um, and frankly, construction, you know, wasn't a strong suit of ours. 
Uh, we've now beefed that up a little bit by hiring construction prep professionals on staff. But again, at the time, wasn't something that, that I could hang my hat on and say, we make our money through sophisticated construction management. That just wasn't the case. Um, and the third was instant appreciation. And instant appreciation is just buying at a discount, right? And, and both myself and my two partners come from sales backgrounds. Uh, so we understand how to manage a funnel, right? And, and what kind of volume is necessary top of funnel for you to kind of produce the outcome that you're looking for at the bottom of the funnel. Uh, and so I'd say, you know, above all else, it was making money in the one way that's guaranteed, buying homes at a discount and understanding that the only way to do that uh, in a tight market, which you know the market was then and, and certainly is now, is by driving extraordinarily high volume at the top of the funnel. Um, said simply, make loads and loads of offers uh, in order to drive the outcome that you're looking for, and, and that's buying a home at a discount. That's great. That's interesting. Like you talk about how like the maintenance side of things. I guess you know. I guess if you're hyper local to an area and you're an expert in maintenance, maybe you can make that more your cutting edge. But for you being at a distance and, and also maybe just not being your kind of sweet spot, uh, it, it makes sense that you gravitated towards let's just kill on the sales side, basically. Yeah, I mean, look, like we were, you know, three kind of sales finance guys um, competing, and I'll use the Bay Area as an example, competing with really sophisticated designers and, and construction folks. Um, you know, you don't want to see my design tastes. <laughs> I'm not going to make anybody happy. And the same thing stands for, for my other two partners. Like design is not our thing, right? Yeah. And so to, to sit there and think that we were going to out-compete, um, you know, again, people that had incredible taste and, and pulse on what your, your uh, you know, buyers of a renovated home were looking for, we, we had to find a different way to compete and, and find a different edge, if you will. <clears throat> That's awesome. And it's interesting. I, uh, you know... I, I, I see a lot of similarities with you. I, so I'm actually not like a home repair construction guru. Um, we do a lot of that here and we have a huge department that focuses on it, but I'm actually much more of kind of like a, both a numbers data guy and also kind of like a, a bit of a sales background. Um, and so it's interesting, I guess, that like, I think historically people who flipped homes are like just in love with like construction. Is that, and maybe you see that too, but it's interesting. Maybe, maybe there's a bit of a, a shift coming by tech and stuff like that, where you see more of this kind of the future of the real estate entrepreneur may be more someone who's more into data and tech and less into construction. I don't know your thoughts on that. Yeah, and you know, I think we're we're certainly going to get there in this conversation, but some of that has to do with scale, right? I think that that there's a very profitable uh, business to be built around flipping two or three homes a year, and you know, that's the type of deal you can really pour your heart and soul into each home, um, you know, renovate each home with a unique palette and something that you think is going to appeal to the current market. Um, be super selective about the deal you walk yourself into because you can't afford to miss, and then uh, you know, really that that is your job being the manager, the financier, um, the, the operator on, on those three projects. Uh, when you start scaling things, that model no longer works because you can't put that type of time, energy, um, you, you know, kind of unique treatment into each home. Yeah. So I think it, it's, it's uh, you know, there, it's not one way is better than the other. It's just if, if you're looking to solve for scale, then as you know, it all comes down to systems and processes and, and um, kind of treating all instances uh, with a similar framework or, you know, you, you just can't scale. Okay. So you flip a hundred homes and it's interesting. I mean, to be honest, for a lot of people, that's a huge win. <laughs> it's funny how that's actually not the, the most interesting part of your story. So talk me through then what led to this kind of pivot to say, Hey, maybe we should basically stop selling these things and keep them instead. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess to be honest, uh, we miss flipping homes. You know, the, the margins that you can see on some flip deals are, are incredible. Um, we were selling, you know, on average, our, our resale was probably $500,000 on the West Coast, but we, we were selling some homes that were north of a million dollars. And, and um, just in terms of visual satisfaction, those are, are cool projects to be a part of, right? Selling a, a $1.2 million home is something that you can be proud of. Um, and in the rental business, which is, you know, where we live now, uh, you get more excited by the spreadsheets and the models than you do the finished product of any of your homes. So, um, yeah, long story short, we were actively flipping, uh, again, up and down the Pacific coast, um, and saw, 
you know, a number of indicators starting to go the wrong direction. Um, days on market timelines going the wrong direction, inventory increasing in all three markets. And I believe this was in August of 2018. Um, and my partner and I, Cruz, we had personally guaranteed somewhere between 20 and $30 million of real estate debt. Um, again, watching the market go the wrong direction, that kind of leverage uh, that, that we were personally liable for, just sat down and had an honest conversation with each other. And um, you know, the, the topic was really, hey, you know, is this business sustainable? Are we taking reasonable risk? You know, are we being uh, kind of prudent in the way that we're running this business? While the margins are fantastic and the business is certainly fun, is this something that's sustainable in, in kind of the long run? And based on what we saw in the market, the answer to that was no, uh, that we didn't feel that current business was, was sustainable with the indicators that we were seeing in the market, uh, but that we wanted to remain partners long term. We wanted to work in real estate in some capacity, uh, felt that we had a strong track record and, and um, kind of an approach that was unique to the business. And so we needed to figure out a way to, to apply kind of our team, our framework, our systems, our line of thinking uh, to a dis different aspect of the residential real estate world. Um, and we had raised money from some folks um, at Lending Home uh, that were in our network and local uh, that we then tapped into and, and just asked for advice in, in making a transition, um, not necessarily knowing what direction we wanted to go, but laid it all out on the table and, and uh, landed on transitioning to become a single family rental fund manager. So now uh, we've since relocated our headquarters from Oakland, California to Austin, Texas, and we are buying, renovating and leasing up homes in three states. Um, Texas, Colorado, and North Carolina. And you know, our goal, frankly, is, is just to enable kind of high net worth individuals, uh, your engineers, attorneys, doctors, entrepreneurs, to passively invest in a diverse portfolio of single family homes. Um, so that's our mission and, and that's what we're focused on today. That's awesome. Uh, you know, one thing I, I talk a lot about is um, I actually wish more flippers would consider holding some of their properties. Uh, you know, when I run the math and I'm interested to hear you, cause you probably run much more math on this topic than even I have. But when I run it, I say, you know, the day of closing on the sales side, you know, you're probably giving away somewhere between seven and 10% of the value between agent costs and transfer tax and closing costs. And also just the higher repair you got to do to actually sell something, uh, and so I, you know, I think about that and then I think about the tax you got to pay on top of it, you know, essentially just because it's, it's income at that point. Uh, what are your thoughts there? And, and do you think we'll see maybe more flippers given low interest rates that where they are right now? Do you think we'll see maybe more flippers try to hold on to assets uh, instead of actually selling them? Yeah, perhaps, um, you know, look, they're, they're such different return profiles. I mean, you're, you're spot on on the economic side of things. Uh, we typically pencil an 8% upon it. Okay. So that's right. You know, 92% of, of ARV, if you will, is what you're going to net. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think you're right on the economics. I mean, in, in terms of making a transition, I, you know, flipping is, is uh, very much a transactional business. So, you know, it's like selling bicycles on Amazon, for example. Uh, whereas rental, we basically view as a subscription business. And, you know, we're coming at this, obviously, from probably a little bit of a, a different background than most that we're coming from you know, software companies and technology companies where that understanding between a transactional business and a subscription business is one that's really self-evident. Um, and in terms of how we build our business and, and uh, you know, ultimately how you structure the business, uh, that decision is really important. You know, is your income going to be transactional such that every dollar you earn, you produce on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And, and that's the life of fixing and flipping homes, right? Um, you take a month off, you go broke because you need to be working all the time to produce that dollar. Uh, whereas in a subscription business, you can take a couple steps back and focus on developing the business without the loss of that transactional income. Um, and so look, in terms of, of kind of building the business that we're keen to build, it only works under that subscription-like model um, because we need to be able to take a couple steps back, uh, pause buying if, if the market doesn't make sense and accelerate buying when the market does make sense and a, a rental model allows for that. Um, in terms of an individual investor, I think you can kind of look at it you know, in, in a similar light, uh, albeit slightly different because you're, you're talking about you know, one person's paycheck at the end of the day. Um, if you need a large sum of cash quickly, 
uh, flipping might be the best way to get you there. Uh, but if you're in a position that those kind of large sleeves of short-term capital aren't necessary, uh, where you're saving money, placing it in a retirement account, potentially purchasing um, you know, stocks through the, the stock market, then you ought to take a look at, at rentals because you're effectively foregoing that quick turn of cash in the interest of something that you know I think both of us would agree is economically beneficial or superior in the long term. Right. Cool. Um, so I want to transition to I guess we'll start with kind of you know the, the you mentioned the markets that you're in. So you you know you're you're based in California, but investing in I, I, if I got this right uh, Colorado, North Carolina, and Texas, is that right? Correct. Yeah, and, and we were based in California. We're now based in Austin, but okay. yeah, correct markets. Uh, but I guess the bottom line is uh, not home base. <laughs> I mean, I guess yeah, now, you're in, right. now you're in Austin, so maybe it's a little more home. But, uh, you know, look, historically, people would say you have to invest locally. Real estate's local. Uh, you're definitely flying in the face of that. You did it with your flipping business, but now you're doing it again. Um, I guess talk me through kind of part A and part B of this. Part A is, you know, why do you feel like maybe real estate isn't as local anymore? That's definitely something that we're very uh, passionate about. That, that, um, and then part two of that question is going to be kind of why those states, you know, how, how do you think about getting to them? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, the simplest way to answer the first part of the question is, um, you know, your familiarity with any given market or your proximity with any given market, your comfort with any given market and the people in that market are in large part subjective data points. Um, and we just don't believe in picking markets on the basis of subjective data. I'd rather do it purely on the basis of objective data um, and, and objective data points that ultimately align with our business model and our strategy uh, than do so on the basis of, of, again, things like how familiar we are, how comfortable we are with any given market. Um, I guess transitioning to the, the second part of the question, you know, if you look at the inputs that drive the success of any given business model or any given, you know, I guess specifically to real estate, any given residential real estate investment thesis, um, you won't find familiarity in a model. You won't find comfort in a model. Those aren't levers that anybody can pull in a model. Uh, and so from, I guess, a pure finance perspective and a return-oriented perspective, they're just unimportant to us. Um, for me, it starts with aligning the markets or I guess our, our market selection process with your strategy. Uh, I guess the simple example would be the best fix and flip markets are not the best single family rental markets. The best single family rental markets are not the best multifamily or, or you know, storage markets, for example. Um, different strategies are, are driven by different levers and you need to clearly define what your strategy is, what your goals are within that strategy and what levers play the biggest role in your ability to hit your goals. Um, if you don't understand the sensitivity of each input in your strategy, how do you know what to look for? What are you looking for when you go into a market? And, and that question is, you know, very difficult to answer. Uh, and, and I think most folks oftentimes skip this process and understanding really what the drivers are of, of their returns in picking markets. Um, for us, you know, for any given fund, the strategy is fairly simple. We're going to buy, renovate, and lease up a portfolio of single family rentals over the course of 12 to 18 months. We're then going to hold those homes for income for you know, seven to 10 years. Uh, and then we'll exit the portfolio, ideally profitably, after that holding period. Um, and when you look at the levers that, that drive your potential success, uh, kind of within that strategy, the first one is volume. You know, we've got 12 to 18 months to purchase all of the homes that we need. So we need to be in markets that support the, the level of acquisition volume um, that's necessary for the fund to fill that quickly. And so there we're looking at things like, you know, population, population growth, MLS listing volume, foreclosure volume, trends on both MLS listing volume and foreclosure volume, uh, inventory trends, days on market trends, um, kind of, you know, simple information that, that the average real estate agent would certainly be able to, to surface for you. On the rental side of things, uh, you know, properties on average need to rent for a certain percentage of their total cost basis. And, uh, you know, without that, we wouldn't meet the cash on cash return expectations of our investors. And so on the rental side of things, we're looking at average rents and average sale prices uh, and, and using average sale prices as a proxy for our average total cost basis. And then, you know, like I said, the, the goal is to hold for seven to 10 years. And, and after that, hold, you know, sell the properties, uh, ideally at a profit. 
And for that to happen, you're, you're looking for some home price appreciation. And so homes need to, on average, appreciate at a certain clip to meet your IRR expectations for the fund. Um, so you could look backward looking and look at things like compound annual growth rate. Uh, you could look at market fundamentals, things like you know employment, demographics, crime rates, et cetera. Uh, or you could look at forward-looking indicators like home price depreciation and forecasts. And look, there are tons of players um, in the analytics space to grab those data points from, you know, Zillow, Neighborhood Scout, CoreLogic, Redfin, uh, House Canary, Adam Data, to name a few. Um, some of those are free and, and some of those you got to pay for. Uh, but if you've done your sensitivity analysis correctly and you understand the relative importance of each data point, the exercise to determine the right market should be fairly simple. Um, so I mean, this is great. Uh, a ton of stuff comes to mind. Um, uh, I guess the first question is, you know, you, you mentioned like a ton of different data, some of which is, is coming at you from different um, angles, right? Like getting at a essentially like an expected home appreciation value is very oftentimes a very different number than a rent to sale price uh, formula. Sure. How do you guys think about that? Do you, does it all, I guess it all kind of goes into a formula and that kind of allows you to score a market. Is that how I should kind of think about that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I guess I, I kind of feel like there's two different questions in that. So one is, um, you know, many of the companies I just ran through have, you know, uh, 10, 20, 30 data scientists on staff. And I'm not going to sit here and try to come up with more accurate predictions than they do. Uh, I will weigh them against each other. So if, if, you know, if we can get a home price appreciation forecast from five companies that we feel like are reputable and have solid data science teams, uh, we may take you know each of those data points and, and effectively come up with an average of them and operate off of that. Um, the other is, yeah, I mean, all you need to do is is weigh each data point that you're measuring based on its relative importance, again, um, driven by you know a sensitivity analysis of your model to produce a weighted score for each market. And then you can compare you know any market you're considering relative to all the other markets you're considering in your analysis with a single score. Yeah, uh, it's awesome. Um, so once you kind of pick out these markets, uh, let's just say you have a fund going on, um, you know, is the idea to kind of try to equally buy across all of them? Or do you let the data dictate what houses you buy? And maybe you picked a market, but maybe you end up buying very little in that market because, yeah, you just can't find the houses you're looking for. How do you kind of think about that? Yeah, so I guess, you know, purchasing an equal share of homes in any given market um, isn't really feasible. It would be unrealistic, right? Because, you know, unless you're solving for equal population or equal housing stock by market, um, that, that just isn't going to be the case. I think, you know, solving for an equal number of our offers translating to purchases in any given market is probably the right way to look at things. Um, we purchase about 1.4% of the homes we offer on. Uh, that sounds like a probably ridiculous number to most people, but um, you know we're making thousands of offers in any given quarter, and uh, and so we'll look to have again just the same number of purchases translate from the same amount of offer volume across all of our markets, uh, and we just look at you know offer to purchase ratio. Uh, cool. And then are you are you buying most of these things off the MLS? Are you guys doing direct mailers to try to or marketing of some type to get you know the ability to go direct to an owner? Uh, are you going to wholesalers? Is it all of the above? How do you kind of think about it? Because I, I ask, because you know, it's it's much easier to find things on an open market and cherry pick them than it is to actually, you know, once you get into to mailers, now you're having conversation with direct owners. Someone's doing the selling there. You know, it just it definitely adds to the complexity of the operation and, and trying to at scale is tough. Although you obviously want to buy cheap, so uh, you know, kind of talk me through how how do you think about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess I'll open with, I love direct mail as a strategy in this business to source properties. Um, when we were fixing and flipping homes, that was in large part all we did. We were spending thirty to $50,000 a month on direct mail alone. Wow. Um, and so uh, direct mail, you know, I, I guess I'll say, got us where we are today. Um, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing now if, if we hadn't built kind of a successful fix and flip business going back a couple of years. And, and that was in large part done on the back of direct mail. Um, what we found in the kind of direct to seller market 
in its entirety. So, you know, pay-per-click, um, uh, SEO, you know, any direct to seller marketing or advertising is it's really difficult to do when all you're doing is holding properties for rent. Um, when you have multiple exit strategies, it makes sense to call, cast a far wider net and then, uh, you know, kind of surface the property and then figure out what to do with it. And that was our mentality. Again, going back a couple of years, um, not Post, the rental wholesale it exactly from the exactly. MLS, you know, et cetera. Yeah, should we assign the should we assign the contract? Should we wholetail it? I don't you know, know if that's a technical term, but I, I think that that's still used. We basically buy it. You know, our our uh, uh, process for a wholetail was we got a weekend, do whatever you can in one weekend to the house, and then put it back in the market. So it's like a wholesale and a retail combined, um, or you know, do you renovate the home and, and sell it? Um, when you're strictly looking at things from a rental perspective, the economics don't make sense to mail because the average property is not going to be a fit. And so you may find someone that you know loves your brand, loves your marketing, um, is a, an ideal prospect to sell to you, but at the end of the day, the home doesn't work. And so we made a transition um, from an acquisition perspective to be home first. Uh, and all I mean by that is, you know, it, we don't necessarily need to understand the details of the seller uh, unless the home works for us. And so right now we're buying a lot through wholesalers a lot through off-market referrals from agents which i guess you could chalk up as wholesales uh, and then a lot on the mls um that that's where the vast majority of our purchase volume comes from it's interesting it's like as you get more targeted you're actually probably paying a little bit more because you're you're buying more targeted properties and also at scale to do that it's harder to kind of cherry pick and find the best deals um, but it sounds like what I'm hearing is I'll forego the best deals to be able to do it at scale and kind of buy the properties I want. Uh, yeah, I mean, on the direct to seller side, like I have memories of, you know, um, I think at the time we were trying to buy, uh, kind of the traditional 65 to 75% of ARV minus repair strategy. Um, and you know, we'd go in and, and get a sense of what the seller was looking for. Always try to get them to give a number first. Um, and if their number was 63% of ARV minus repairs, that's what we offered. 63% of ARV minus repairs is you get these sure. home runs. Um, and that just isn't the case, you know, in, in our current business, you're much more solving for a volume of doubles and singles, uh, than you are a low volume of, of, you know, I guess triples and home runs. Talk me through a little bit about, and I, look, I don't need you to like, you know, give us the exact details, but like, what is the kind of date? the interface look like to allow you to figure out if something's a green light to move forward and buy it? You know, is it a, is it a, is it a complex shared spreadsheet that you guys kind of all work across? Is it something you, you built? Is it something you like other kind of tech you just leverage? Um, and just to go a little more color here. I think that one thing I've learned in real estate is like, I actually think there is some proprietariness to how you evaluate properties. And I think, um, you know, I hate it when I talk to an investor and they say like, well, it fits the 1% rule. So like I should buy it. And I think like, man, there's just, there's so much more to real estate. Like this is a living, breathing property, you know, in a wildly different uh, economic area, crime area, taxes. I mean, there's so much going on here. And to just kind of funnel something down to the 1% rule, uh, you know, saying, well, something's, uh, you know, $100,000 property rents for a thousand, like I'm good. Uh, you know, to me, that's just kind of taking the easy way out. Uh, talk me through kind of, I guess, both your thoughts on that, but also more broadly, like what, you know, I don't know, at, at a broad stroke, what's this kind of decision interface look like for you guys? Yeah, so I guess in, in terms of tech, um, it's a marriage between, uh, you know, Salesforce, um, Google Suite. Google Suite is incredible. I mean, I, I you know I was uh, kind of working through what we built in Google Suite earlier today, and, and it's just I, most folks only scratch the surface on on what Google Suite is capable of. And by Google Suite, I mean you know Google Slides, Google Docs, Google Sheets, Google Scripts. Um, you can automate a tremendous amount with Google Scripts. Anyway, so it, it's a marriage between Google Suite, uh, Salesforce, and and Slack. I'd say more than anything else. Um, and then in, in terms of kind of the underwrite, um, you know, we have a number of things that are rule driven, um, just binary yes, no. Uh, and, and if it doesn't meet the rule, it's dead. 
Uh, and then we have a number of factors that you know are not binary uh, that we measure and then use that measure to you know kind of impact how competitive our offer is. Um, for example, you know, on, on rental yield, if something's going to rent at an 18% gross yield, um, we're going to be more competitive on that home than it would if it rented at a 12% gross yield. At the end of the day, both of those levels of yield meet our funds requirements, right? And so both are, are quote unquote eligible assets, but one's going to drive much uh, more compelling returns for the investor than, than the other would. And so we'll come in a little bit tighter on our offer um, than we would on, on that, you know, kind of lower yielding home. Uh, that makes sense. Could you just uh, a little bit more on Google scripts? Uh, we've had a lot of super sharp folks here on the podcast over the last year. I think you're probably the first person to bring up Google scripts. Maybe just a, you know, uh, a little bit more detail on, on kind of, is that a developer who's writing those scripts for you? Or are you guys just writing them yourself with some basic knowledge of, you know, computer language or uh, talk me through a little bit about that, that how you're using that and, and where it helps. Yeah, so the latter. Um, uh, we write them all internally. Um, you know, look, I think if we were to contract somebody out, the initial product or, or script that they produce would probably be more sophisticated than what we're doing in-house. Uh, but then you have to pay them to maintain it uh, and iterate on it. And iteration is everything in business. And so uh, I'd rather kind of take the plunge up front and educate myself or, or have you know one of our team members educate themselves on um, the tech and, and figure out how to do it internally. And so, you know, be patient with yourself. Um, you got to be scrappy. You got to be creative and you got to have a vision of what you're looking to accomplish. Uh, and if you bring those things to the table uh, and you Google and YouTube and, you know, stack overflow your way through it, your problem is not unique. Um, some other individual has solved the exact problem that you're bumping into in a slightly different context. And it's just a matter of finding that answer. Uh, awesome. So, yeah, in, in terms of who it's, it's us um, on the what, I mean, so Google scripts, we primarily use to kind of enable different Google products to talk to one another. Um, and so, you know, you can have uh, Google scripts drive integrations between Google Forms and Google Sheets or Google Sheets and, and Slack. Um, you can also integrate with any API that you'd like uh, with Google scripts. And so, you know, in, in terms of underwriting, if you're looking to pull um, third-party data points into your template in a way that doesn't require you to go you know, Google seven different resources and copy and paste data from them. You can use APIs to do that. So right. anyway, I, I, to be frank, I think um, Google scripts, we've only scratched the surface of what it's capable of. Um, but even then it, it saves a tremendous amount of time. That's awesome. Um, I mean, it's almost, and I, I actually, I guess we've done a little bit with Google scripts, but not, not much, but it's almost like your own rudimentary API. Is that, uh, you know, it's kind of like starting to like kind of join different data sets together and allow you to. Um... Yeah, that's right. I mean, like uh, what's an example would be, you know, click a button in a, a spreadsheet and that uh, button triggers a script that drafts an email for you, um, grabs data points from Salesforce based on you know, who the contact is that you're looking to email. Uh, pulls fields in from the template itself, pulls fields in from Salesforce um, to, to personalize that email, uh, and then ultimately sends it. So, you know, instead of having a, a salesperson go into Gmail, you know, perhaps pull a template that they have in Gmail or manually write an email that says, you know, hey, John, we'd like to offer $7,000 or $150,000, whatever it is, on this home. Um, you can do that with the click of a button. And, you know, there are other products that, that can solve for the same thing. Um, but I've just found that Google Scripts, certainly within the context of Google Suite, uh, is, is fairly intuitive and easy to use. That's awesome. Um, okay. Uh, I want to transition a little bit to uh, once you buy the property, how are you guys handling and how do you think about the kind of asset manager role? Is that, is that someone's job at the company? You, I would assume you have local property management companies in each market. Um, you know, just kind of t t talk me through that. And, and I, the reason I'm asking this is I think the asset manager role is underappreciated in real estate. Uh, and, and so I, I wish investors did a better job of kind of upfront saying, if this is a four person team, who is the asset manager going to be and, and defining that role? I'm, I'm interested to hear kind of your thoughts on that, especially coming from the flipping world where you don't need an asset manager. Uh, so yeah, I, you know, how do you guys handle it? How do you think about it and its importance? 
Yeah, so I guess uh, I'll answer the question in two contexts. The first is construction. The second is kind of post-construction stabilization, if you will. Uh, so we have an individual on staff who manages all of our construction. Uh, we have an individual on staff who manages everything post-lease. Um, and so, you know, those two bodies of work have a single point of responsibility. Um, we can hold that individual, you know, responsible to, to goals and production and, and kind of getting back to your point. I think that that's super important. Um, if it's a team responsibility, then nobody's responsible for it. And so I'd, I'd agree there. Um, look on, on the construction side of things, kind of starting there. Um, the reality is that kind of our, our process uh, at least starts in a non-technical way. Um, it's fairly simple, which is, you know, building the right relationships. And, and it's certainly easier said than done. Um, again, it's, it's not tech-driven. It's really just an, an effort thing. And, uh, you know, I think in flipping and in, in you know, our current business, the rental aggregation side of things, the best contractors don't have a large brand. They don't have a, a presence online. Um, if they do, then they're probably passing those costs to you and you're paying for them on your project. And so, you know, our goal is to find scrappy, reliable folks uh, with small production-oriented teams um, that have very minimal overhead. We don't like admin staff. We don't like people that advertise because we don't want to pay those costs. Uh, and so when we make a decision to launch a market, part of our market launch playbook is for two to three of us to go spend a couple of weeks in that market. Um, and, and that's purely to build the relationships. We'll meet with, you know, 15, maybe even 20 contractors uh, and walk away with three to five that we're going to send a project to. Um, and, you know, these are simple questions. We, we send our head of construction in and he pretends to know nothing about construction. Um, he'll ask simple questions like what should it cost to replace, you know, flooring for a 1200 square foot home? Uh, and if he gets an honest answer, you might make the list of three to five. If you're selling us, you know, ridiculous costs or claim that it's something that you can't answer off the top of your head, uh, which, you know, any competent contractor should, uh, then you're not going to make the list. And so you know, part of this is just finding honest people, uh, honest people that, again, are going to be dependable and, and scrappy, um, that aren't looking to, to, you know, kind of become the next 500 person GC and, and reinvest all of their proceeds into to building a brand. And, and um, that, so, but that is a GC. So you actually, because I mean, you're something you're doing, uh, I mean, I don't know, what, what's the average size of your rehab on these projects? Yeah, it's about 40,000. Okay. So these are big projects. So, so you are actually hiring a GC to be the local GC for each, you know, rehab project. Project dependent, um, but yeah, I'd say you know, in in instances where it requires maybe more than two trades, we're going to hire a general um, okay. because you know, with the lack of boots on the ground, that's that's you're kind of betting on them to to keep things aligned. Okay, so so you have your local GC, but also your head of maintenance, kind of in a centralized role, together helping to try to keep this thing on track, getting done, you know, against budget. Uh, and by the way, I didn't ask this, but I assume is someone boots on the ground walking the property before you put the bid in to give you an estimate? So it, one of our general contractors, uh, we have inspection arrangements with all of them. And it's interesting because we make them inspect it and bid it simultaneously before we purchase the home. A uh, benefit there is that there's zero room for error between our estimated construction costs and the bid that we accept because they're held accountable to the number they post from that inspection. Um, so, you know, they take loads of pictures, obviously we analyze those pictures. Uh, they actually fill out a Google form, which produces a budget on our end and we ask them for a budget. Um, so we kind of have a benchmark internally and, and then obviously their bid externally. Um, and we typically get three inspections done on every home. And so kind of going back to the three to five contractor point, uh, the goal is to build up a base uh, of folks that you can get to compete against one another, right? Um, if you're only getting one bid on a project, you're you're taking exposure to to someone pulling wool over your eyes and taking advantage of their relationship, and that's not something we're comfortable with. Yeah. Um, and and, and look, are those are those estimates getting done post, like you're under agreement, or are you doing yeah, that? So we'll go under contract and typically do ten day due diligence or ten day inspection period. Depends on the state. There's different language. Okay. Um, and then during that ten day due diligence or inspection period, we'll we'll knock that out. Um, and and you know I guess one other thing that I should say is. Uh, that kind of upfront interview process and figuring out, you know, from the 15 to 20, who do, the, the three to five players are um, only gets you so far. And after you work through your first, you know, maybe five completed projects, 
it becomes really clear that maybe there's one or two of, of the three to five um, that are really worth partnering with. And again, kind of going back to the, the question on scale versus just running a few projects, we can afford to skin our knees on a couple of homes to get more volume. And so it doesn't you know, hurt our, our fund's performance. Um, and it's frankly something we're totally comfortable with. If, if we have one or two bad projects when we first enter a market and we use those projects as, as kind of our proving ground and learning ground uh, for testing new relationships. Awesome. Um, just then, really cool stuff here. Um, so, and then talk me through kind of post, you know, you get a tenant in there. Uh, I guess it's somebody else's job to be the kind of asset manager working with the property management company. Am I thinking about that? Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I, much of what I said on the sourcing contractor side of things applies to property managers, it applies to wholesalers, it applies to agents, which is we're going to approach it like a sales funnel. We're going to build up a list of 15 to 20 property managers in the market. We're going to go ask those 15 to 20 property managers, you know, the same series of call it 10 questions. We're going to write down all of their answers. We're going to come back in the office. We're going to sit down, review them, figure out who we want to send our first couple of properties to. And then let the top performer prove themselves out by kicking them a, a you know a property or two and seeing how they lease it, seeing how they manage it, right? And, and so folks have strong tenant-facing brands um, are, are typically who we'll set up at least initial interviews with, and then uh, and then again kind of work through those interviews and, and determine who we want to partner with long-term. Um, once we've partnered with them, and, and again most of this would apply to the contractor side of things, also uh, we do you know weekly virtual production meetings. So run down, you know, date the property we ex- or date that they expect the property to be leased. Any tenant feedback or feedback from folks that have have walked through the home, um, things that we can either you know change on the next house or things that we need to immediately address on that house. Um, and so just getting clear expectations from folks and, and holding them accountable to those uh, expectations is um, something that's made easier with tech, I suppose, but but isn't necessarily tech driven or tech dependent. Uh, it's just a matter of, of making production a priority and, and um, kind of having, you know, maniacal accountability um, to, to ensure you get what you want. And then I guess, do you, do you allocate some percent of rent towards this like asset management long-term to basically essentially pay for the resource who for the next 10 years is going to be, you know, I mean, if you stop raising money, there still has to be a resource internally who kind of sees these things through that seven, 10, whatever year. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so our uh, we charge two percent asset management fee on each fund. Um, so you know, on a five million dollar fund, it's hundred grand a year, um, and you know that really is is I guess kind of post the what we call the acquisition phase when you're stabilizing all of these homes uh, is really a matter of taking a critical look at at the portfolio and seeing you know does it make sense to exit any of these properties now? You know, has any market appreciated in such an incredible way that we want to exit this property early, not wait for that seven to ten year hold? Um, are there any bottom performers that we really need to either turn or get out of because they're just not suited for the portfolio? And then again, uh, just holding property managers accountable. Um, and you know, we've learned kind of early in in real estate that one of the best strategies is to be the squeaky wheel. Uh, and so we are the squeaky wheel with every third party we work with. We call you more than you want to be called. We ask for more than we probably should ask for, uh, and we'll force folks to do things again like virtual production meetings, um, which you know I would assume that the average landlord is, is probably not asking for. Are you guys sourcing the contractors when, you know, when you've owned a property for two years and the roof needs to be replaced? Are you guys sourcing that? Are you relying on the prime management companies? Maybe a, a combo of both. So we ask that any maintenance request be serviced to us prior to anyone moving on it, unless it's less than I believe three hundred dollars. Um, so you know, look if if uh, you know someone's uh, I'll just say like like wall or window unit AC goes out, um, we don't need to be involved in that. Just replace the window unit, right? Uh, however, if if something like a roof pops up, we'd certainly take it on and, and hand it on to one of our relationships, um, unless the property manager had kind of better access to pricing than we do. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, I mean, such a super awesome model. Uh, this is kind of a tricky question, but do, do you even think? I think I even asked you this before, but you know, when the fund is seven, ten years out, from an accounting perspective, tax perspective you're going to have depreciated most or a good portion, I guess, of, of that property. 
um, especially the way you're going to have, I'm sure you're going to use accelerated depreciation up front. You're going to appreciate some through. And, and I guess where I'm going with this question is the, the tax hit will be somewhat significant seven, 10 years out. Is there anyone in the fund saying like maybe in seven, 10 years, we actually don't want to sell. We want to just refi and keep this thing going. And I asked because in our syndication, you know, when we started to run the numbers and say like in seven, 10 years, if, if we actually sell this thing compared to refi it, post tax implications, I'm just, I'm not convinced that our investors are making any more money, even in that year eight, like let's just say year eight, we're going to sell. I wasn't convinced that they'll actually take a home any more money when you take into account all the implications than if we were to refi and just kind of keep it going. Um, what, what are your thoughts there? And I know it's kind of a tricky question, but especially since most people want a fund to end at some point, uh, how, do, how do you kind of think about that? Yeah, I think, you know, that that is the biggest challenge sourcing capital for a fund like that. Uh, look, I think that, that you, you put your mind uh, in kind of the average landlord, if you will, and, and your average landlord is not purchasing a home with the intent of holding it for seven to 10 years and selling it, right? Like most folks have a longer term vision in mind. Um, however, the second you introduce us as a fund manager and we tell you, yeah, you're investing your money uh, and it's a 30 year hold, um, people start raising that. Eyebrows. I mean, people raise eyebrows at a seven to 10 year old because they're not comfortable with locking their money up for that period yeah. of time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think in, in terms of is, is there a viable business or is there a viable kind of fund uh, to be structured around something like that? The answer is absolutely. It's, it's a matter of finding the right capital for it. Um, you know, in terms of cash returned in that seven, nine, 10th year, to your point, you know, I guess simple math would tell me that, you know, if you refied out, you'd probably take 70, maybe 75% of appraised value. Um, and if we sell, kind of going back to the earlier points around cost you incur upon sale, you'd take about 9% appraised value. Uh, and so, you know, I think just in terms of simple math, we'd be returning about 15% more capital in that final year um, as, a, as a percentage of, you know, total portfolio value than we would if we refied. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, the, the benefit of continuing to hold those properties for income and appreciation may far outweigh the benefit in selling them. Um, and I think if, if we were able to source the right capital for it, we'd absolutely be interested in, in running a fund like that. Yeah. And just to, I mean, I guess the last comment I'll make is I think one of the keys to that question is at least us locally, like we're seeing banks being willing to do 80% loan to value. And so when I say, when I see 80% loan to value at low interest rates, Compared to on your you know on your point maybe ninety two percent as a uh, you know final number throwing some tax hits and I just say like I just don't you know it's hard for me to argue to ever sell these things I, obviously at seventy that starts to change uh, the equation a little bit um, but uh, okay the last thing I just wanted to get at was uh, two more questions the first is you know it's interesting I mean one thing I'm really passionate about is that kind of data and tech enabling scale in a unique way which I think is just fundamentally changing real estate. Um, and it doesn't mean that the small time investor flipper goes away, but I, I, I think there's being less of them. Folks like you are, are just going to be taking up more properties. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I guess my, my thinking, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, is that like you guys couldn't have existed even probably five, seven years ago. There just wasn't enough tech out there um, to enable you to kind of make these decisions and, and monitor things from a faraway location. It, do you agree? Like, do you feel like, you know, even five, 10 years ago, you couldn't have existed that you're kind of relying on, you know, e even stuff like Google suite just wasn't where it was today, five years ago. Yep. That, that would have had to be my answer. I think five years ago, a little difficult to answer 10 years ago. It's clear. Uh, no, would have been impossible. Uh, look, all of the data that we talked about, about market selection, um, it, it may have been available to some people, but they would have been far more technical than we are. Um, and so I guess the, the democratization of data, if you will, just the accessibility of data to non-technical people like us, um, arguing that we're non-technical, but uh, it is, is huge. And then just the development of um, products like Google Suite and Salesforce, like they've come such a far, far, far away from where they were 10 years ago. Of course they existed, but um, you know, I don't, I don't think we'll be able to run our current business in, in the same context at the same scale with as few people as we have on staff, uh, 10 years ago. No. Uh, and I, I mean, I totally agree. I think it's going to totally change things. Um, cool. Last question I have for you is, and I ask this kind of to close every interview I do, as you look towards the next couple of years, what, you know, and even, even six months, what's something that maybe you're not doing today from a tech or data perspective that gets you excited 
that you think you, you know, could, could do in the future? Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's a new piece of tech that's coming out. Maybe it's leveraging data in a different way. Well, you know, what kind of jumps to your mind uh, of, you know, where things are going? Yeah, so I guess not specific to real estate, um, just the continued development and, and, you know, I guess iteration by the big SaaS companies uh, will probably be the most impactful on our business. Um, you know, not to continue naming the same people, but Google, Salesforce, you know, Twilio, um, Intuit, you know, the, the, the folks that run QuickBooks. Um, what they came out with over the last year, two years, three years, they, they aren't ideas that I had, right? They are ideas that were cooked up internally, um, that were far more creative and, and far more impactful than anything I could have dreamt of. And so I think what we're most excited about, frankly, is, is what comes out of those big tech shops uh, over the course of the next couple of years. Um, if, if they just continue to do what they've been doing uh, and, and the resources are still as available as they are to, to kind of build knowledge around what they're capable of, um, the impact will be remarkable on, on our business and, and any business that's willing to kind of go beyond um, what's on the front page to, of, of those products, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, specific to real estate, I think it's it's data. You know, I think uh, I mentioned democratization of data and, and I think that's really what what um, small folks like us, I'd consider us to be a small player benefit from the most, you know, making the work of best in class, uh, extremely sophisticated data scientists um, that are working for, you know, cutting edge real estate companies or just cutting edge data companies more accessible to the average non-technical user uh, will make this space far more competitive. Uh, and frankly, it'll continue to level the playing field between small and big players, I think. Um, so much of this is, is just a willingness to dive into something that may seem foreign uh, and, and learn it, you know, and, and um, I think most folks are far more capable technically than, than they give themselves credit for. And it's just a matter of being patient with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a great way to say it is. Uh, I think a lot of understanding tech is, is having patience and not yeah. giving up. I mean, we see the difference between the person who, um, I mean, what we do in the interview process, if I see someone approach a piece of tech or software or even their phone and I ask them, you know, so to use this or that, and they just, they, if they're the kind of person that has a propensity to go quickly, they're probably not going to work in our company. Yep. Um, okay. and it's not to give a similar approach. It's awesome, man. I, I don't want to keep you any longer. Great conversation. Um, if people want to reach out to you, what's a good way? I, I know uh, I do want to give you a plug here. So it's like you're raising a, a $5 million fund, kind of fund two. Is that right here? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, can't get into the specifics of it due to right. SEC guidelines. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, if, if someone wants to inquire, uh, our website is epocre.com. Uh, there's a form there to fill out. Again, epocre.com. Uh, and you can reach me at chad at epocre.com. I'm happy to answer any questions, be a resource to, to anybody that's looking to do something similar. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we wouldn't be where we're at if we didn't have incredible mentors that provided their time for free. Uh, and, and I'm more than happy to do the same. So if anybody out there thinks I can help, give me a shout. It's awesome, man. Thanks so much for uh, coming. Hey, we're having a conference. Now, I know you're in Texas, but uh, in April 2021, the whole conference is based on the future of real estate. We're called the Next Generation Real Estate Investors. You should totally come hang out with us if you're free in uh, April 2021. We'd love to. Yeah, love to be there. It sounds like obviously a great fit, good opportunity to meet loads of cool people. And we'll just see what a uh, good old COVID-19 has to say about it. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Root for some awesome vac vaccines this winter. That's the plan. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, man, hey, thanks for joining. This is awesome. Uh, I know you got more houses to buy, so I'll let you get at it. Uh, thanks for joining the Real Estate Hackers podcast. This was fun. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. I have one more request. If you like this show... Could you just please give us a review on Apple Podcasts? I'd really, really appreciate it so more investors can hear about us. Follow us at Real Estate Hackers on Instagram if you're cool like my wife. And if you have a great real estate hack, hit me up. Maybe we'll get you on this show. Real Estate Hackers is an on-air brands production. Eric and team are unbelievable. Thanks for all you do for the show. See you soon.